0: Today, we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, we celebrate it not really just as a spiritual event, although it was profoundly spiritual, but it was also profoundly historic. It happened in history, and it's verified by evidence. If you're curious about it, you should investigate. Um, It was earth shattering. It was not only in history, but it was history shaking. It changed history, turned it inside out, and surprised everybody. One of the common misconceptions about the resurrection is, oh, well, the people especially attached to Jesus kind of made it up out of their, um, out of their wishful thinking. But as we read in the historic record, they were the most surprised. They were the most distraught. People uh, who were the most surprised by Jesus' resurrections are the ones that bonded with him in his three years before he died. I mean, think about it. After he died, they were, number one, absolutely distraught. Um, they were overwhelmed with shock and depression after they watched him die. Um, They were paralyzed in fear. They were huddled up in a room hoping no one would find them until he found them, until they got news of his resurrection and saw it for themselves. And they were totally disillusioned. I mean, they had so much hope that he would deliver them. That's the state that Jesus' resurrection found his followers Not wishful thinking, but absolutely distraught. Imagine being in that state, and then and then getting the news: Jesus is alive. Imagine being depressed. Imagine being disillusioned. Imagine being afraid, and getting the news: Jesus is alive. You know the tomb is empty. He's been talking with people. Everything has changed. Some who got the news were totally skeptical. They're like, no way, no way. There's no way. Someone took the body. Uh, some were full of shame because they bailed on him when things got bad. It, here's what one theologian said. Jesus's beloved disciples had to see Jesus through their own tears. Um, they had to understand the resurrection of Jesus through their own sorrow, because it was such a jolt to get the news. It was such a surprise. And it took a long time to process it. So, you know what? What does Jesus do about that? You know what He does? He takes it one conversation at a time. He takes it one conversation at a time. It doesn't matter if you're skeptical, disillusioned, ashamed. It doesn't matter if you're sad and in grief. It doesn't matter if you're depressed. It doesn't matter if, if, you're, if you're stuck in futility. He takes it one conversation at a time with you. Isn't that how we process? Now the introverts among us are saying, well, I need some time to process. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's part of the equation too. Extroverts need processing time as well. But we all, every single one of us, need the right conversations at the right time with the right person in order to process. So, how did Jesus choose to impart life after death to his disciples? How did he impart his resurrection life to their state of death? How did he breathe the reality of heaven into their souls? Okay, how did he reach in and and take out the bits, the shrapnel of hell that had lodged itself into their souls and bodies? One conversation at a time. How did skeptics become believers? How did the anxious become bold? How did the distraught become full of hope again? Read any of the Gospels. Read any of the post-resurrection accounts, and you'll see it. It was one conversation at a time. We built an entire sermon series based on that observation. And and we're going to go through a series in Eastertide called Life After Death, Seven Conversations with Jesus. We'll explore Jesus' conversations with people who are grieving, frozen in fear, disillusioned, skeptical, ashamed, and comparing themselves. And, and I want to personally invite you, if you don't have a church home, please join us for the rest of the series and take it one conversation at a time. Okay, because Jesus is alive and he's still having conversations with curious people. Today we're going to look at that very first conversation. Jesus had with with anybody. The first conversation he ever had with any human being after he was resurrected. The first person to see him alive and the last person to ever expect it. Why did Jesus give this honor to the woman we know as Mary Magdalene? Every gospel writer is like, Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene. She's the one who saw it first even though that was not the most credible historic thing to say based on how the ancients viewed women, but they were like, that's history. She saw him first. She was the one with the honor. She was the first one to tell us. She was the first conversation with the resurrected Christ. Why? Only Jesus could tell us for sure why he gave that honor to Mary Magdalene. But first, I want to tell you about this woman. Okay? Um, Before Mary Magdalene met Jesus... The gospel writers tell us that she had seven demons. All right? She had seven demons. And the number seven was understood as a, a number of completion. They were trying to communicate that she was completely overrun by demons. Um, now, if you or someone you know has ever been openly harassed by even one demon, you know that it can be an absolute hellish experience. Some here are skeptical that demons exist. Demons exist. Those who have a global perspective and have traveled abroad and and witnessed activity outside of the late modern West knows that for most of the world, they openly believe in demons because they openly see it happen. Demons are real, and they're nasty. The goal of demons is to utterly oppress people that God has made, and they will lie, torment, discourage, confuse, and tempt any person they come across in order to meet their goal. It's it's a mistake for us to assume that Mary Magdalene is the same woman that Luke talks about who was a prostitute. There's no evidence that that's that's her. He doesn't name that woman as Mary Magdalene and had every reason to name her if that was her. It's not her. Um, But there's plenty of evidence to show that Mary Magdalene was a woman of high standing in her community who had significant material means. And so, but nonetheless... She was at at the mercy of merciless dark spirits day in and day out. They had possession of her. Imagine being in a constant wrestling match for control of your physical and mental capacities. Imagine hearing a constant stream of violent lies. All of life must have been dark and depressing and purposeless. What was Mary Magdalene doing on the day Jesus met her? Maybe she was convulsing in pain with her eyes sunken in and her hair pulled back. Maybe she was calm on the outside and pretending everything was okay on the outside, but but making plans to commit suicide on the inside. In any case, hell had its slimy clutches over Mary Magdalene. Hell had claimed Mary Magdalene as its prey. And then she crossed paths with Jesus Christ, the creator of Mary Magdalene and the Lord of heaven and earth. How the demons must have quaked when they saw him. How they must have clenched their teeth when he made eye contact with Mary Margaret and told them to go back into the abyss where they came from. Jesus set Mary free because he was the Lord of life. And then he invited her, come, be my apprentice. Come learn about my father and your father. Come come out of slavery and fear and death and purposelessness and, and come into the freedom of the good kingdom of God. Mary was one of the first of billions of people whose life Jesus would totally change. And if any of you have ever met someone whose life has been totally changed by Jesus, maybe you get a taste for what it's like to be Mary Magdalene. Her life was totally different. It was something new. If anyone's in Christ, new creation. If, if we're away from that long enough, we, st- we stop realizing what a radical difference it can make, how freeing it can be, how much joy, peace, and hope Jesus brings when he changes a life. So she, her life changed, and she became part of Jesus' ministry team she was learning from him, and she was teaching others, and she she was seeing changed lives. Um, The scholars of the four gospels kind of all agree that she was recognized as as a leader among among the women of Jesus' followers. How joyful those three years must have been. Can you imagine those three years following Jesus around, eating with his disciples, uh, seeing change lives, seeing the father provide, being there when there was, there was no food and lots of people who were hungry and, and, and seeing the, the loaves and fishes multiplied. Imagine all the memories you would make. Imagine all the bonds you would form and the hope that would be stirred every single day. And when things turn bad for Jesus with his trial, he's accused of blasphemy and then he gets whipped almost to death. And he carries his cross and he goes to the cross. You know, at the cross, there's three people left. I mean, there was hordes and hordes of people following Jesus when when he was distributing food. But when he was at the cross, there were three. Jesus's mom. The beloved disciple, John and Mary Magdalene. She never left his side. She never gave up hope. She was there the entire time. And, and now, you know, he, he delivered her from hell and then she's watching him. And then hell's got its clutches on him. And, and who's saving him? And, and was what happened to me real? And is this, is this all a cruel joke? In verse 11 of our text, it says, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. <laughs> Can you taste the salt in those tears? Can can we even begin to understand the depth of Mary Magdalene's grief at the tomb? It was through those tears that she would have to see Jesus. It was through those tears she would have to see Jesus. And then she's weeping at the tomb. Then she continues to weep. She looks inside the tomb. In verse 12, she saw two angels in white. Uh, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head, one at the feet. Here, here we have the first clue that Mary is standing in an overlapping of worlds. Um, Mary is in what some have called a thin space. She's in a thin space where the curtain between heaven and earth is remarkably thin. There's angels in, in graveyards and talking with people. and She's in a holy place. Where angels of God are ascending and descending, and she, did, she didn't even know it. She's understandably, totally tunnel vision focused on finding Jesus' body so she, she can bury it in honor. She turns around and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's a gardener. Ask him where the body is. Where'd you put the body? And then the conversation begins the conversation between Jesus. And Mary Magdalene, who is utterly distraught in grief, and Jesus gives Mary a great gift by drawing her out. He says in verse fifteen, "Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Hey, Mary Magdalene, what's behind those tears? What are they saying?" Um, he's drawing her out of the abyss again. We all need this when we're grieving. Jesus is beginning to open her eyes now to reality. Not only hers, but his. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She sees him. She recognizes him through her tears and through her grief. Something startling that it's going to take a long time to process. This is Jesus and he's alive. And then she must have totally immediately like clutched him. Some people, think, you know, some people think that she like, put her hands around his feet to keep him from walking anywhere. <laughs> and Jesus says, don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. The, the, these feet are not made for walking. They're made for ascending. <laughs> don't cling to me. I, I'm going back to the, the resurrection work is kind of in progress, Mary. <laughs> don't cling to me. Is Jesus telling Mary Margaret to not be clingy? Don't be needy, Mary, just get over it. You know, pull yourself up. I'm alive, don't be so sad. Boo-hoo-hoo. <laughs> you know, sometimes that is how we respond to people who grieve. We're like, get over it already. It's been a long time. It's been three years. Sometimes we're so uncomfortable with death that we shut people down who are grieving. And we use trite spiritualized phrases to do some to, 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 to do so. And talking with one of the members of our community who lost a family member, and here's what she said. She's like, since I I, I lost my mother, I've heard a stream of predictable phrases. He or she's in a better place. Uh, Everything happens for a reason. Um, God's in control. Um, He's going to use this for good. He'll use you to help other people. Um, And she says this, a lot of time in the grieving process, it feels like he's not in control. Or that if he is, he's against you. Or that he doesn't care. Um, when you say he or she's in a better place, that doesn't really matter because all that matters is that that person was ripped out of your life abruptly. People say it will get better with time, but in some ways it gets worse with time, she says. The longer you go without seeing that person, the more painful it could be. Is Jesus using a trite phrase on Mary Magdalene? He's not. He's not. You know what he's doing? He's calling her to grieve the world she knew. Grieve. Grieve the world you're in. Grieve the world that you know. That's the only way that she could let go of the reality she knew three years before, the last three years, which was that Jesus' incarnate physical body was right next to her. That's gone now. That is in the past. And there is a grieving process that's necessary in order for her to embrace what's coming. Jesus is going to ascend to the Father, send His Spirit, give birth to the church. Mary would go on to be an active participant in all of that. But it would be different. There would be loss. No more life with incarnate Christ. No more itinerant ministry in Galilee. No more meals of loaves and fishes. Mary would need to grieve all that and grieve it fully. She might need to cycle again and again, maybe even sometimes in random order between the, what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross diagnosed as the five stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And, and it wouldn't be the last time, friends, that Mary would have to grieve. If she'd lose all of her friends. Almost every single one of them would die worse deaths than Jesus. And she spent the three years with them too. And she would help them give birth to the church. Mary had to grieve the world she knows. And don't we have to do that? Haven't you ever had to do that? Grieve the world that you know? What are you grieving? Maybe you too lost a family member in your life. And it still hurts, even today, even this morning. Maybe, Maybe you... Something changed between you and a friend. It's not the same anymore, and you're grieving that too. Maybe you recently moved and you're totally homesick. And maybe you're in tune with with the grief of an entire community and the injustices and the oppression that they experience. One pastor made a list that I thought was a good one. Uh, Miscarriages of children. Miscarriages of justice. Senseless killings everywhere broken bones that don't heal right, child abuse, slavery and slave-like wages, marriages that are on life support, lost children. Do you know that your grief, whatever it is, has great meaning? If you're grieving this morning, your grief has great meaning. Because even as we grieve the world we know, Jesus prepares the world God wants. Even as Mary grieved the world she knew, Jesus was in process of replacing it with the world God wants. Verse 17, he says to her, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus is ascending to the Father, where he will make all things new and involve Mary Magdalene in the process. Now, think about this. Think about this. Jesus Christ, when he was resurrected, was the prototype of the world God wants. Okay? He's physical yet indestructible. He's humble yet full of glory. He's passed through death yet more fully alive than ever. And and he's preparing the world God wants. Even as we grieve the world we know. He's preparing a world without death. He's preparing a world without abuse. He's preparing a a world without any of the death spinoffs that you and I experience every day. Injustice, fear, oppression, hunger, separation, and yes, grief. There is a world coming without grief. And that's why he was ascending to his Father. That's why he was sending the Spirit. He's in process of creating this new world, and involving his followers in the process. And that's why Mary, still wiping those salty tears from her face, runs to the disciples and tells them, I have seen the Lord. It's not because she'll never be sad again. It's not even because she'll never be depressed again. It's because Jesus is preparing a world where sadness will be wiped away completely, where depression will be no more. She runs to tell his disciples, because we can participate in that world now. Those of us who follow the risen Lord this morning, okay, we're dual citizens. That's why we can mourn and rejoice sometimes in the same moment. We're dual citizens of both worlds the world that we're grieving and the world that Jesus is building. We mourn our losses in this world, even as we rejoice in the victory of the world Jesus is preparing, because if anyone is in Christ, new creation. That's why we mourn. We mourn with hope. You know, there's something prophetic about your tears. If you have tears of grief, there's something prophetic about those tears. At least there could be. At least there could be. If you would but offer them up to Jesus, um, who himself said, blessed are those who mourn. Um, Nicholas uh, Westerstorf, uh, who lost a son to a climbing accident, he said this in his book, uh, Laments for a Son. The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day, who ache with all their being for that day's coming, and who break out into tears when confronted with its absence. They are the ones who will realize that in God's realm there is no one hungry, and who ache whenever they see someone starving. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one falsely accused, and who ache whenever they see someone imprisoned unjustly. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there is no one who fails to see God and who ache whenever they see someone unbelieving. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace, there is neither death nor tears and who ache whenever they see someone crying tears over death. The mourners are aching visionaries. The mourners are aching visionaries. And if you are a mourner here, we invite you to be an aching visionary. As we grieve the world we know, Jesus prepares the world God wants. Even as we mourn, we have a message to deliver. In the words of a fellow Anglican priest, the resurrection is something that is already at work in the world. And one day, this world will be transfigured by eternal life. Friends, Jesus is alive. And this is a thin space. It's a space for heaven and earth to mingle together, for God and humanity to meet one another, as if for the first time. You know, it's here that we can turn and we can see our gardener, who's making all things new, who's preparing a place for us, the world we were made to be a part of. And as we leave this place, as we leave this thin space, and we go mourn and ache and grieve with our friends and neighbors, we can say with Mary Magdalene, I have seen the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.